Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Issa Arsene about her debut novel, Shoot the Moon. Although in some ways 1969 barely seems long enough ago to qualify as historical fiction, the moonwalk already lies far in the past for many of my listeners. And when it comes to details of daily life, the roles of men and women, the prevalence of cigarettes, and many other things, large and small, we really are living in a different world. That is immediately obvious from the beginning of our son's engrossing fictional dive into NASA culture circa the mid-1960s. 1966, the Manned Spacecraft Center, Dr. Alan Gibbs's empty office, Houston, Texas. I blew a piston of smoke through the open window and took another draw on its heels, my eyes fixed on the waxing moon hanging high above. The sill dug softly into my elbows as I drank the fresh air. I was lucky the door had been unlocked, and luckier still the random room I'd chosen had a window. Beyond the door I'd shut tight behind me, the office-wide Christmas party carried on with a crush of seasonal noise and bluster I hadn't been doused in since I was a kid. My parents were the only ones of their friends who had gone and had a child amid the heaving groundswell of the 1940s. Having a daughter bouncing around like a free agent didn't deter mother from throwing her Christmas party in excess every year. With the other lab men and their wives on leave from Los Alamos for only a precious handful of days, for one night a year our house was a tiny nucleus of normalcy, warmed to bursting by laughter, spiced wine, and the popping of paper crackers I had helped make at the kitchen table the week prior. And now, please join me in welcoming Issa Arsene. Hi Issa, I look forward to talking with you today. Hi Carolyn, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. As I mentioned, uh, Shoot the Moon is your debut novel. How did you get started writing fiction? I have been writing for as long as I could hold a pencil. I loved reading when I was a kid, uh, and then when I realized I could make up my own stories, I just started and never stopped. Um, I have stacks of old notebooks of just me riffing on ideas that came up from when I read my favorite books. It's very, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery, a.k.a. I was just sort of 
playing with characters that other people already made up and, and learning how to tell my own stories with that. Um, and it has just always been something that I've kept running alongside my own daily life. There, there has never been a reality for me in which I was not writing. Um, but I started taking it seriously a couple of years ago, uh, the, the early months of the pandemic, which, which sounds trite to say, but truly it's, it's, you know, you have all the time in the world and you have this huge global crisis that you don't really know how to deal with. But uh, the one thing that I could control was telling myself, well, I think I can finish a manuscript now. Um, so Shoot the Moon was not the first full manuscript that I finished, but it was the first one that I really thought had legs and could hold water and, and could become a fully fledged book. And now here it is. But yeah, I, it's, it's kind of an underwhelming answer to the question, but it's, I have just always been writing. Um, but no, I, I, I don't have a formal education in it. Um, it has, it has just always been a piece of me. I don't have a formal education in it either. I did it just for fun as well. So. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it is a really special way to come to it. I think it's the, the crop of us who are just drawn to it by our nature, I think um, we, we do have a an interesting slice of, of the creative pie with that. I agree. So we meet your main character, Annie Fisk, when she's in her mid-20s. What should we know about her at this point in her life? By the time Annie is in her 20s, she has experienced a lot. Uh, she has experienced loss and love in equal measure. Um, but at that stage in particular, she is really deciding what she wants for herself from, from the world. And um, she's not somebody who's very good at being told, no, you can't, or, or she, rather, she doesn't really understand limits. Um, she's not somebody who was raised to be okay with walls being in her way um whether that was whether it's explicit or not um the way that her, her father is a scientist and i think we'll, we'll talk about that later but um she has just always been around progress and science and and uh curiosity in the world around us and kind of what makes reality tick um so she is really stepping into her own of making her father's ideas of what mankind is and what we take from the world and forming her own opinions about that. Um, so it's, it's equal parts kind of confused and, and figuring things out as she goes, but also having this very strong conviction on the inside of her that says, I'm, I'm drawn to this thing and I don't really know why, but I'm going to chase it down. The novel shifts back and forth between Annie's present and her past. There's a good reason for this, and we're not going to reveal what it is, <laughs> because we need to tread carefully to avoid spoilers. But the first place that we go is from 1966 to 1948, when Annie is about eight years old. What is her life like at that moment? In 1948, uh, sort of the 40s and these early 50s, um, Annie is a very precocious child. She doesn't know that the world can be anything but exciting and amazing uh, and beautiful. And, and she is very much in that innocent phase of, of childhood, which I think is a very special period of time that it lasts different lengths for different people. Um, but it was really special to be able to dive into that and, and figure, um, you know, I know where I want this woman's life to go, but how did it start? Uh, but it's quite idyllic. It's very quiet. She's the only child uh, with with her parents, which was unique in the 40s. Um, but yeah, she she makes her own fun. Um, she comes up with a whole bunch of ways to not feel so lonely. Um, and 
she's just very capable at sort of filling her own space at that stage. Her father is a scientist at Los Alamos. Uh, it's a coincidence, of course, that your book is coming out a few months after Oppenheimer became a box office straw. But it's a nice coincidence for you. Um, what can you tell us about Annie's daddy and what makes him, in her words, sad? I have always been drawn to the human element of any sort of scientific progress, whether it is weapons development or exploration. Um, I think that the fact that we are humans making things that can either make discoveries or cause great harm to others, uh, I think it's, and oftentimes those two are, are holding the same thing in, in the same set of hands. Um, but the way that I have wrapped my mind around Annie's father, Ford, um, is that he is somebody who, very similar to his daughter, um, I, I think has come up through these halls of science and, and really driving towards progress and seeing, you know, he has this great mind and he wants to use it to the best of his ability and feel stated in this need to discover and feel, feel relevant, really. Um, so it's a little bit of ego. It's a little bit of nature at once. And... I think for him, the main crux of the issue is that he feels fulfilled by the work that he's doing, but he does understand that it comes at a great price where you do. And, and I think Oppenheimer, the, the Nolan film, did a very good job of presenting this duality of, you know, yes, you are this incredible genius and you are contributing to this team of people who are truly breaking ground. But at the same time, you are building something that is so deeply destructive and is so intensely strange on the scale of, of what can we what what is possible I think quantum physics is is a hell of a thing um, so there has to be some element of personal reckoning that that comes into that to each scientist I think with different degrees and obviously I'm not a scientist myself but it was a very interesting study of a character to to turn over the idea of what would that be like what is that process what is that emotional position that you're put in with progress versus responsibility. Even though um, her father is a difficult character in some ways, Annie's relationship with him seems to be more affectionate than her bond with her mother. Um, how would you describe Helen as a personality? What did she want from life and did she attain it? I think Helen is a peacemaker. She's somebody who wants to feel needed and loved and necessary in the equation. Um, she, so she very deeply wants to be a mother. She loves her daughter. She loves her husband. Um, I, she was probably raised very traditionally as, you know, young, being a young woman, it would have been in the, in the twenties and thirties. Um, but some of her, the, the backstory that I have spun up for her and Ford is that they did meet when he was in, in kind of the earlier stages of university. So they met one another at a time where this, I, this this uh, almost an innocence of excitement of what's coming down the pipe was very fresh for both of them. I think it was the interwar between World War One and World War Two. Um, so Helen is somebody who I think expresses her love best by directing and sort of putting a plan in action, which is great because I think Ford is is a man who's very scattered. He's very married to his work. Uh, he's got a pretty limited view on the present where the only thing that exists is the thing that's right in front of his nose. Uh, but he has, he's married to a woman who is able to see the bigger picture. And I think um, 
that is something that endears her to Annie in a way that Annie doesn't really understand until later in her life is that her mother really does see more than she lets on. And her mother does understand her in a way that uh, she isn't able to parse until much later. I have the impression, too, that it must have been quite difficult for wives at Los Alamos um, because of the, the secrecy and the isolation. I think so. Yes, there's there's a lot of books and a lot of material, uh, particularly the museum in New Mexico, um, that that focuses on the fact that you know socially you have these people who were raised and built up to be homemakers and uh, keep the peace and make your family happy and and sort of distract them almost. It was it was very much that you have these families and these children that are supposed to not really be aware of the real truth of what's going on. Um, so I do think that they had a very tall order on their shoulders to um, take a lot of the burden where it's, it's you know, your husband needs to be primed and ready to work. So you sort of have to take a lot of the emotional labor out of the process. And I think there's a lot more complex emotions at work in that time, in that location, than I think we're really able to even parse from here. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is ripe for, I, I want to see somebody else do a book that is specifically about the, the family units there. So I, I am eagerly awaiting that on my bookshelf someday. <laughs> and I can imagine, I mean, in the 50s, too, it was even more now than now, it was a woman's job, a wife's job to handle the emotions, where, especially with a scientist and a physicist of all people. I mean, those are... I don't want to make horrible generalizations, but I do get the sense that people who are drawn to physics are very much interested in the, um, I don't know what to, how exactly to express it, but the, the sort of practical things in life, um, even though their field is, you know, theoretical physics is, is almost mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. It, it was interesting, too, to, to build those relationships because in many ways Annie is is the perfect blend of both of her parents. She is sort of this gentler spirit that is very similar to her mother and and she does want things to be a very certain way. She wants to be in control of things but at the same time she can't help but be drawn into this world of exploration and physics and impossibility Um, and she doesn't quite know how to reckon it but it, it was it was very rewarding for me to sort of build in the subtleties of her relationships with her parents. Annie, as a child, has a favorite spot at the back of her yard. What makes it special to her? Annie, I think, is somebody who is okay with not having a lot. I, I think she she tends to kind of make her own fun, particularly as a kid. She's an only child in the era where families were large. It was rare that a family only had one kid. <clears throat> so I think deep down, she wants for a sibling, she wants for somebody her age to resonate with. She doesn't want to be lonely. She doesn't understand that she's lonely, but it's a feeling that she has as a kid. She can't point to it objectively and say, this is what I feel. Um, But the spot in the backyard gives her something that is hers. It gives her uh, something that she doesn't have to explain to anybody. It's okay that she's alone when she's out there because it captivates her interest and um, pretty in the second chapter of the book, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she has an imaginary friend too that shows up there. So it's it's very much the idea of a child filling in the spaces that they don't understand that something is missing there, but they fill it anyways because it's natural for them to kind of... I, I, I like to think that the default for children is happiness, and, and um, they'll sort of bend 
reality in any way to make that happiness for themselves, um, even if they don't kind of know why they are unhappy. So it, it was it, it, the spot in the garden is just as much a symbol as I think a very literal element of the story at once. At 18, Annie leaves home and heads for Texas, uh, where she enrolls in college. What's that experience like for her? It's the first moment where she really realizes that she is an adult and she is driving her own destiny. Um, for much of her childhood, for, for all of her young adult life, she has hinged her ambitions and her purpose on, you know, what would my father do? What would be expected of me? Um, and now she's thrown into this collegiate atmosphere and all of a sudden she gets to take her own classes. She gets to chase her own dreams and wants, and she gets to make friends that turn into more than just friends. So it's, it is a truly an awakening, I think, in every sense of the word for her. Um, and she doesn't understand the magnitude of that immediately, but it, it, it gets there. <laughs> She majors in physics and astronomy. Um, obviously, part of the appeal there is that uh, her father is a physicist. But what draws her to those particular fields? Because they're quite unusual fields for a young woman to enter into in the early 50s. Yeah, the, the physics element is definitely her projecting onto her father to say, you know, I am my father's daughter. This is what he did. This is what I must do as well. And the astronomy element of it does come from the connection that, that she forges with her father. There is a chapter where he explicitly tells her, you know, she, she says to him, I want to do what you do when you grow up. And he tells her, well, I don't want you to do what I do. Uh, how about you work on something made for exploration? How about you figure out how to go to the moon? So she internalizes that and, and really makes that her mission um, to fulfill the promise that she made to him. And the best way that she can think to do that is quite literally studying planets and, and physics at once. Um, and she finds a professor in the astronomy department who really has her best interest at heart. Um, and that was a really fun relationship to, to build between her and Professor Late. Um, I think anybody who has done college in any capacity, I would hope that everybody has the opportunity to have a, a connection with the professors that really gets them and, and moves them and inspires them. Um, and it's a very unique relationship that I, I think is very, it's a very special, very innocent, very pure connection to have between two people. So it was, it was really fun to, to put that together on the page. Annie also has her first serious romantic relationship, at least that was my impression, in college with a woman named Evelyn. What brings them together? I think Evelyn is everything that Annie sees and admires, but doesn't feel that she can become. And Annie is somebody that Evelyn is just completely enamored by because Annie doesn't play by anybody else's rules. Um, and the reason it's so organic to Annie is that she doesn't think that there's any other way to do things. She's a very literal person. She's very almost dry where it's, it's, she's analytical, she's numbers minded and nothing else matters that besides the truth. And Evelyn is somebody who's a lot more emotional, a lot more artistic. She's a painter. Um, so they really are two sides of the same coin and, you know, opposites attract. And um, I do think that initially, it, for, for Evelyn at least, it's the challenge of kind of cracking the egg on this woman who is so such an enigma to her. She doesn't understand Annie. Um, and Annie is just completely enamored by Evelyn. She, she has moved through her teenage years understanding that she is attracted to women in some capacity, but not really knowing what to do with that. Um, and Evelyn is the first time that somebody objectively looks at her and says, you know, hello, I am attracted to you and I would like to pursue this. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Nonetheless, Annie's heart is set on NASA. Uh, how does she get to that opening scene in 1966? Well, Annie points herself towards NASA without really knowing why. There is an element in the book that, that kind of seeds the, the path to this. But um, she is told by that same professor, Dr. Late, that the best way to get work is to get your foot in the door. But he encourages her, you know, once you get your foot in, just keep walking. Don't don't settle for something that kind of cuts your 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 curiosity off of the path. Um, so I think it, it really is just her ambition that gets her all the way from college to NASA. She works a couple odd jobs in the meantime, um, but she's a very driven person, and it, it is very much her personal mission to accomplish what she feels on a on a very chemical cellular level that that is something that belongs to her that she just has to do. What can you tell us about Norman Gale, the man that she encounters later in that opening scene? Norman, I think, is like every heartthrob mixed with like (laughs) dorky, lovely, sweet man that I, I could think to mash together. Um, I love him. He, I, I am biased. He's one of my favorite characters that I've ever put together. Um, he really loves that Annie is smart. He likes the idea of a woman being able to put him in his place. He likes the idea of suddenly not being the smartest person in the room, um, you know, double bonus points because it's a woman and it's a pretty woman. It's a woman that he's attracted to. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he's somebody who is, uh, he knows what he wants just as much as Annie knows what she wants. Uh, he is very dogged in the pursuit of that. But I think similarly to Evelyn, uh, he's somebody who does let his heart drive a little bit. He's not entirely head directed, um, which again plays into the relationship dynamic that he forges with Annie, where she is very much the head. He is much more the heart. Um, she, she tends to attach herself to people who can, and I think it's an unwitting choice that she makes is that she attaches herself to people who um, make up for the characteristics that she lacks. Um, and I do, Annie is somebody I think that has <clears throat> quite good instincts when it comes to falling in love with people. And it's, it's entirely uh, uh, unintentional on her part, but uh, she, you know, she, she follows and is, it gravitates towards people who want to take care of her. Yeah, he really is a charmer. Um, I was very taken with him, too. He's so much fun. I love him. I love Norm. He wanted to be an astronaut. What got in his way? Uh, He wanted to fly, become a pilot. Uh, The the backstory that he has is is a large military family. His brothers are pilots. He's the youngest brother. Um, But he has a number of of physical limitations that that kept him out of the cockpit. He was not allowed to become a pilot. So the next best thing was studying up on engineering and becoming a navigator so he can pilot from the ground. I I think at at one point he says, you know, the reason that he does any of this is so he can see the stars from where he is able to be. 
So despite her degree and her stellar grades and everything else, uh, Annie begins at NASA as a secretary, uh, which is very indicative of the way educated women were treated at the time. Uh, even when I got out of college, you were asked how many words you could type <laughs> per minute. <laughs> and she accepts that position knowingly to get her foot in the door, but she doesn't stay a secretary. So how does she end up in computer programming? She ends up on the programming team partially by Norm's meddling and partially by her, her willingness to step up to the plate and give it a go. Um, you'll see at some point Norm manages to convince her to come to dinner with him um, and very ungracefully lets on that he went to his superior uh, and told him that, hey, you know, Fisk is a little too smart to be a secretary, which is its own brand of like accidental misogyny of the time. Um, but she accepts the test to, to take um, to make sure that she has the know-how to be one of the programmers. <clears throat> and um, yeah, she she takes the bull by the horns and accepts the position. And from there, uh, then things really start taking off. So yeah, she's she is fearless when she knows that it's something that she wants. So what I loved about this novel is that even though it's set during the planning stages for the Apollo spacecraft, it's, it is about NASA and it's about the Apollo program, but it's mostly, I think, about Annie's personal development. And about halfway through, it takes a surprising turn, which I'm not going to reveal. Um, so I'm going to ask you as a writing question, how did you come up with um, this way of approaching the story? Um, what made it best suited to this story? It has been kind of a non-linear back and forth scenes from the past, mixing with scenes from the present from the very earliest stages of the outline of, of the first craft that I took at the idea. Um, and I was, I kind of raised myself literally on a, on a diet of postmodern kind of weird novels uh, that like to play with form and, and kind of buck the, the um, conventional idea of, of what, Story, what linear storytelling can be. Um, and I, I like the idea of pulling a reader into the car and saying, you know, we're driving from point A to point B. Here it is on the map, but I'm not going to tell you how we're going to get there. And it's a fun exercise in trust to uh, expect the reader to say, yep, take me where you're going to take me. And, uh, you know, I, I have done that countless times with, with books that I have ended up loving re from a reader's perspective. So it was it was kind of a personal test of muster for me to say, you know, can I make this work? And, and kudos to my editor, Kate Dresser. She was able to, uh, we played a lot of Jenga with the order of the scenes. Um, and there's a couple different scenes that are, that are quite pivotal, heavy moments that ended up in two, three, four different places throughout the editorial process. But finally, the, the way, the, once we landed on the order that they ended up in, um, we knew that that was the one. So yeah, it, it, it for me, the idea of character development parallels throughout a life, you know, you, you do think to childhood and young adulthood and adulthood, and, and we are all of us a series of patterns, and, and sometimes we repeat behaviors, sometimes we pick up new behaviors, but I think all of us are informed by who we have been and who we, we are currently growing into, uh, and perhaps who we will be if we have some eye to what we want to do in the future. Um, and, you know, where we would like to grow. But this idea of no matter what point in time you're looking at in somebody's life, there are moments of parallel. Um, 
and, and finding those spaces, it, the way that the chapters move, my hope is that it never feels disjointed because there's always a through line of the character driving in the same direction. I, I, I tried very hard not to jump too hard between uh, Annie being person A and Annie being person B next to each other. I really wanted that growth to be clear um, from from childhood all the way up into adulthood, regardless of the period of time that it was. No, I thought it really worked. I, I thought it was amazingly Thank well you. done. I was, I was impressed. I was like, oh my God, how did she pull that off? But you did. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it was. There were a lot of kind of nights where I was kind of tugging at the loose of my hair, being like, "My God, what did I get myself into?" Um, but we made it work. So it, it's very rewarding to see it now all laid out on the page and say, "Like, yes, that, that is a, that is a cohesive story that we have." So, are there characters or incidents I haven't mentioned that you would like listeners to hear about? Uh, there's one character who comes up about two-thirds of the way through the book, Art McCabe. He's one of the flight directors at NASA, um, and he's grumpy and, you know, stressed. They're in the last couple months of Apollo 11. They're approaching the launch. Things are going wrong. Um, but at his heart, he's a very warm, tender person, and he's, like, mad about the fact that he is so soft and tender. <laughs> so he was, he was a lot of fun to put together, and he and Annie have a great rapport between them. Um, so, yeah, I, Art McCabe, I think, is, like, in the running for my favorite character in this. And actually, as you mentioned him, I, there's one other, and I'm blocking on her name, but the woman who is in charge of the computer programming was a really ah, interesting Roz. character. Roz, Roz yes. Washington. Tell us about her. She's great. She's a genius. Uh, she's very intimidating. Uh, she is a woman of color in the 1960s, so she has a lot of, you know, moxie and toughness that shouldn't have to belong to her. But, you know, the, the, she's had to have worked twice as hard to get to the same place that, that other people, white women, would have only had to work one time as hard to get to. Um, but it, if, if you've seen um, Marguerite Shetter, read Marguerite Shetterly's book or the movie that came after it, Hidden Figures, um, that focuses beautifully on the fact that the programmers at NASA were largely women of color. Um, they Computer programming was seen as drug work back then. It was not kind of the shiny, sexy field that it is today. Um, because back then people didn't realize that that was the meat of the work. They thought it was an auxiliary process. Um, so they gave it to the lowest common denominator, which unfortunately in that time was women of color. Um, so Roz, I, I personally, I am not black. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable making the story about black women. And again, I think that has been done before in a way that I it would have been stupid of me to try to outshine it. Um, but it is important that I think attention is pointed to and drawn to the fact that we could not have gotten to the moon without black women in America. That's a very good point, yes. Um, what would you like people to take away from Shoot the Moon? I think ultimately the book is about hope. Uh, it's about understanding that the days can get dark and things can get bleak. Um, and the reality that we live in is often very ugly. But uh, ultimately the thing that drives us and the thing that keeps us all together is the fact that we can love one another. And I think that if we can remember that and always find connection points between each other and understand that it's just as important for us to tell people that we love them as it is to do anything else. Um, you know, you never know when you're not going to have another chance to tell somebody what they mean to you. So you might as well do it every single time you see them. 
Um, so I, I do think that hope and and the ability to tell the people that you care about how much you care about them um, is is the only thing that matters really at the end of the day is the fact that we love. Are you already working on another novel? I am, yes. Uh, I have it's another novel with Putnam. Uh, it's coming out uh, in, I think, early 2025. It's called The Unbecoming of Margaret Wolfe. And it's another mid-century story. Um, it's about a woman who is a Shakespearean actress in New York in the 50s and her relationship with her co-actor, Wesley, and uh, a summer festival that completely flies off the handle. <laughs> It sounds delightful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Issa Arsene about Shoot the Moon. Find out more about her at inarsen.com. That's I-N-A-R-S-E-N. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I blog about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.